When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Total Soccer Show and our latest listener questions episode. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me today is a man whose answers to listener questions are much like his beard. They're long, but they don't need trimming. Taylor Rockwell. Uh, that is correct. I appreciate that introduction. I'll say my beard is also very curly, so much like my answers, it circles back in on itself. I feel like that fits. See, that was part of my original script, but I didn't want to be rude, Taylor. <laughs> they're, they're, they're long and meandering and sometimes get right back to where they were and sometimes <laughs> end at a point. How about that? And sometimes should just be completely shaved away. <laughs> Disagree. <laughs> Hard disagree for me too. Just kidding. <laughs> also, here you might have heard him giggling just there is a man who loves the Olympics more than life itself. It's Graham Rutherford. Graham, you adore <laughs> the Olympics in all forms, right? Oh, yes. I am an expert now in all things Olympics. Uh, the USA are apparently now bad at women's soccer and basketball. And the UK, Great Britain, are still really good at the dancing horses. Horse dancing <laughs> is the greatest of all Olympic sports. We can agree on that, Graham. And one that I've really gotten into this time around is the skateboarding. Um, watching here in, in England on the BBC commentary, and you've got the commentators saying, oh, that Ollie he just flipped was so fresh. <laughs> that backside kick flick fakey nose grind was on the nose, baby. And it's just, well, it's it's kind of strange for Olympic commentary. Yeah. There's just some countries that don't go together with some sports. I think Britain and skateboarding goes as, goes together as well as, I think, Italy and rap, um, really. so <laughs> I mean, I won't diss the Italian rap till I've heard it, frankly. <laughs> well, you're going to hear I do hear sort it. of picture, like... <laughs> The very stuffy, tuxedoed commentators trying to do skateboarding. And I'm sure they have people who do it appropriately and have some level of insight and aren't just horrified and monocles falling out. But that is a more fun way to picture it being covered in England. But it, it was quite fun watching the skateboarding. But then the, the very posh commentators say, oh, that was baller. And you're like, oh, <laughs> no, you don't need to say that. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, Completing our lineup, by the way, is a man who is unlike the USWNT because he doesn't need to fix a darn thing. Joe Lowry. <laughs> oh, Ryan, if only that were true. Uh, on a different note, <laughs> I really, I missed you guys. This is fun. Even though I was just sitting in the background waiting for permission to speak in that banter bit, it's fun to listen, you know? Joe, I, I would like a five-word summary of either Olympic skateboarding or the USWNT at Olympics. Go. Oh, I've also watched some Olympic skateboarding, so I'll go that route because we've talked plenty about the US <laughs> Women's National Team. Uh, it's not its not my favorite. It's so cool, and every Olympic sport is so impressive. This is way more than five words. I forgot what my restriction was. Uh, it, I'll, it's fun. I'll summarize, Joe. I think I got okay, you. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go no, ahead. no, no. You finish your point, and then I'll summarize oh, okay. five words. It's fun, and it takes an incredible amount of skill, but I, I just haven't been able to get into it. So maybe people will uh, roast me for that, but that's just my opinion. Uh, not my favorite is fine, is, is how I'm summarizing <laughs> for the five-word limit. Thanks, Taylor. No problem, buddy. 
Wow, Joe not liking the skateboarding is making me flip an emotional 180 ollie here because I was enjoying <laughs> it very much. How strange. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, it's okay. Something else I was enjoying, by the way, my favorite story this week. Before we get to listen to questions, uh, this this story, I don't know if you saw it, gents, about Wayne Rooney injuring one of his own Derby County, play- Derby County players uh, in, in training. Jason Knight, it was during a practice game. Uh, the Republic of Ireland midfielder was left with an ankle injury that could see him sidelined for up to three months by Wayne Rooney. He was joining in because they were short on numbers in training. Uh, that's not ideal, Joe, is it? I mean, were they really short on numbers in training? Wayne Rooney just feels like the kind of coach that will just come in to any drill. Usually it's the assistant coaches who come in and, and fill out the numbers. He feels like a guy who will actually step in no matter what. If it's if they have 22 guys and they can go 11 v 11, I think somebody's sitting so that Wayne can play somewhere I, in central midfield. I like the idea of managers seeing this as some form of tactic to get players out of their team. So Solskjaer <laughs> is looking at Phil Jones right now with a two-footer in mind. <laughs> He's going to go flying in. I think the, the biggest concern here is I read on Reddit earlier that Jack Wilshere is now training with Derby and he Uh-oh. is literally oh, no. made of glass. So uh, if, if Wayne Rooney comes near him <laughs> on one of these teams, uh, I'll be quite concerned for him. Um, but Brian... Can I just can I just say I'm choosing to believe that Wayne Rooney saw that photo comparison that was doing the rounds of him compared to Steven Gerrard and just realized like all right I got I got to get back to it I got to get serious about my fitness and I'm going to assume that with Wayne Rooney it's it's a zero percent or one hundred percent effort sort of situation and so he went <laughs> all in on that tackle trying to uh to maybe shed some pounds and instead he shed a player uh well. Taylor, when you talk about the Rooney photos that are doing yeah. the rounds, I thought you were going to be talking about the photographs of him in a hotel with three 21-year-old I thought that was going girls. in a different direction, I have Ooh, to say. Yeah. I missed that one. Apparently, my, my, Wayne Rooney, my, my Wayne Rooney radar, is what I was trying to say, their Google alert situation is not set up properly. Uh, I have definitely missed that story. Uh, so between those photos and the injury and training, uh, Rooney's tackle getting him in trouble in more ways than one. Thank you very much. I'm here all week. Thank you very much. Try the veal. <laughs> all right. Shall we get to the list of questions? Why don't we? Uh, um, let's start off with one from Mr. Matt Cost. Thank you for your question, Matt. Uh, what countries have a club team in their domestic league that would beat their national team? Would Bayern Munich beat Germany? Would Real Madrid or Barcelona beat Spain? I don't think any MLS team could beat the USMNT, says Matt. Uh, that seems like a challenge. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we can get to that part of the question. I seem to remember years ago, I might have made this up in my head, but many years ago, the winner of the Spanish uh, division played the national team in some kind of community Ooh. shield kind of thing, which would be awesome. I might, once again, I might have made that up and there might be some leagues that had, used to do that in the past. But my initial answer, Taylor, here is that yes, every top five European team's winner could beat their national team. Is that yep. right? Pretty much. I would agree with that. <laughs> I think especially if we're not doing this in a sort of FIFA vacuum like in FIFA there's no background there's no training uh and then you're basically putting like Chiellini could play for Juve and for Italy if we're making them choose I think then it's it's a more interesting conversation but yeah I think if you're putting Bayern Munich up against the German national team and maybe Bayern Munich keep their German players I think Bayern Munich are going to win I think the same for PSG though you never know instability but there's also instability with the French national team I think Man City and Liverpool would probably both be able to get by England I think Juve up until recently could probably have handled recent Italy. I don't know about this time, and I, especially if Chiellini and Bonucci played for Italy instead of Juve. But yeah, I'm with you that I think for any number of reasons, strong club teams are going to beat strong national teams. So we're approaching that, Taylor, when you say Chiellini could play for both sides, for example, mm-hmm. like the Street Fighter 2 rules where, you know, when you would guile 
fighting guile and yeah. you have one in slightly different color camo that that's what you're going for right they yeah. you're duplicating players because obviously with someone also like, they also have to have the guile flat top and say sonic boom routine sonic but boom. yes boom <laughs> the best one <laughs> i remember thinking that was the coolest thing ever and then realizing it wasn't an actual power you could master but was instead just sort of things being loud the thing about Street of Fighter 2 was the rounds, the bonus round where you got to beat up a car. Who beats yep. up a car? That looks like it would really hurt your fists. Uh, anyway. Honda does very well. That's <laughs> the answer. I've played too much Street Fighter. <laughs> and we've gone slightly off topic already. Um, <laughs> Graham, I'll, br- I'll bring you in here. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? And what are your thoughts on Street Fighter 2 rules in this? Because if you're thinking about something like a team like Man City, who have like at least four starting England players, or maybe three, uh, if you can't feel... F- yeah, let's say four. Um what do you make of that, the proposition here? Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing I was going to say with Bayern Munich in, in Germany, is there a difference? I feel like there's a, a big overlap there, and they're just the German national team that plays in the Bundesliga. Um, but yeah, at my, I mean, I don't, want, I don't mean to slap <laughs> down this question too much, but I, I, I'm just of the opinion that a, a, like club teams have such a natural advantage due to the amount of time on the training pitch, for instance, and and um, just that they can, that a manager can create a culture. And the number of times we said we mentioned it a lot about Roberto Mancini's uh, Italy team during the Euros podcast. We all we always said they're like a club team, um, and that was meant as a, as a compliment. So I would even go kind of further than than Taylor and say I I think a lot of club teams would beat their their national teams. I mean, if you're going through the Premier League, like you know City, Liverpool. United, Ars- actually no, not Arsenal. Yeah. Uh, they wouldn't be top English. teams. Just top teams. <laughs> yeah, top teams. Just top teams. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, an, an example for that I would draw is um, as a Scot. I would look at Scotland and Rangers. So Rangers, obviously, the Scottish champions. I think on paper, there's no denying that Scotland are a, a better team than Rangers. But if those two teams were to face each other, I, I would expect Rangers to be the Scotland national team. Um, just because they 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 have a lot more time in the training pitch and all the reasons I, I mentioned previously. Yeah. Joe, your thoughts on this question? And Joe, would you like to see this as a regular fixture? The, the thing I might have made up where the national team plays the uh, the champions as a preseason warm up that would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Oh, I'd love that. It really would be straight out of FIFA. We'd have to work on our cloning technology to make it the full simulation. But yeah, I like the idea, Ryan. And I agree with the premise that we've kind of established here that most elite club teams, and Graham even took it a little further, but generally speaking, most elite club teams would beat most elite national teams. I think that's a fair summary here. I will say, though, I think of the top five leagues, I think Italy would give last year's Inter Milan uh, Serie A title winners some trouble. And I think Spain would give... Atleti or, or Barca Real Madrid trouble because Barca and Madrid are not at their height right now. They're not the height of their powers. And Atletico Madrid is a very strong team, but it, it is still a contrast in styles with how Spain play. So I think maybe with those two exceptions, I don't know, France as well could give PSG some trouble, but they're so hot and cold sometimes. I think there are teams, are national teams that would give the top club teams in their country a battle. But for, I mean, most of these cases, I completely agree with Graham. These teams have so much time to train. And so if we're looking at it in, in outside of a vacuum, if we're looking at it where these teams have the same training situations, most often it's going to go to the club team. That said, 
I think there are a few examples of national teams, a few a few examples in, on top of the ones I said could give teams trouble that would beat the top teams in their domestic league. Mexico, I think, would beat any team from Liga MX, even though there is real talent there. The U.S. men's national team, I think, would beat any team from Major League Soccer. And that's in the question there from Matt. There are others as well. Portugal and Brazil would beat, I, th- I think, teams from their domestic league. Or certainly, they're a lot more talented. So this was a fun thought experiment. And I, I don't think it's necessarily as as clean cut as maybe I thought it would be at first. I think, Joe, if anything, you've kind of convinced me that this is a thing we should be doing. Sorry, Ryan, it, Joe, who gets the credit. Because <laughs> when you're talking about like this being a battle and could give a team some trouble, I think that might be a useful thing. Like We think about Spain, who play a very similar version of tiki-taka to Barcelona. And they're playing a, a high-possession style. It's not the most intense uh, like attacking uh, sort of approach. And to find a team in La Liga that has caused Barcelona problems would be maybe a good way for Spain to go about finding an opponent who has played against Tiki-Taka, has a way to sort of cause Tiki-Taka problems, and then how do you adjust to that? It gives you sort of learned experience. So I could see a world in which they're playing, I don't know, Real Sociedad or whoever that bogey team might be as a way to sort of give them more familiarity with that sterner opposition. I doubt it ever happens. I think it has happened in the past, as Ryan said, and I think I've talked about watching the U.S. play Derby County way back when in the 90s. Mm. Uh, but I doubt it comes back, but I still think it could be an interesting experiment. And I think, Joe, to your point, it is probably the case that if your best players are playing in one of Europe's top five leagues, like, but not your own league, then I think a lot of the time, if you're basically a selling league or a developmental league, I don't think you're going to have clubs that can challenge the national team if you're one of those more established leagues with a bit more money i think you probably can there's got to be a few nations like small nations who have players playing at a high level who who aren't playing their domestic league the one that springs to mind would be croatia surely the croatian Mm. national team would be any domestic team from denmark too yeah i mean there's there's a good few of those i think graham yeah i'm totally with you are we totally brushing over the MLS part of this question, Joe? You did mention that you don't think an MLS team could beat the USMNT. Are you saying like the Sounders wouldn't have a chance, for example? Mm, I, would they have a chance? Yes. Like the top 5% of MLS could give the full U.S. Men's National Team a game. But right now, I think we're all caught up in the U.S. Men's National Team at the Gold Cup, where we're not seeing Christian Pulisic or Gio Reyna or Tyler. I mean, we're not seeing the top, top players. Mm. With all of those guys in the mix, the U.S. should should win that game uh, 9.9 times out of 10. All right, let me slightly flip the question. Which national team could Inter-Miami beat right now, Joe? <laughs> and why Z- is it Scotland? Zero? Oh, gosh. No, no. They would have no chance against Scotland. Uh, Inter-Miami <laughs> Can is... Can we play them so, then? Yeah, you know, go for it, Graham. Inter-Miami... <laughs> Just uh, confidence builder. <laughs> Cincinnati had a dumpster fire at their training the other day. Like an actual dumpster being caught on fire right outside of their training ground. That should have been at Inter-Miami's training ground in Fort Lauderdale because that is much more <laughs> fitting for where they're at right now. Oh dear! Any thoughts on that? You anyone have to else? Go far. Man, I'm trying to think here. I like only. I'm trying to think of a team that is in like absolute dysfunction. Uh, Inter Miami. Yeah, I can't think of a national team that like <laughs> like that really isn't that level of disarray. I mean, I, I guess probably if you're going to like the like any team ranked a hundred or lower in the FIFA World Rankings, maybe in Inter Miami yeah. can can get a result. But even then, I think there's some teams that would cause them problems. Faroe Islands, someone like that, maybe. Ooh. <laughs> We drew I mean, against them. Are we playing home or away? That's <laughs> <Graham>. another one. <laughs> Depends what the climate is as well, doesn't it? Because oh. they're, they're used to a much different climate to Miami. Anyway. Yeah. Oh. 
<laughs> no, I've heard the Faroe Islands are the Miami of wherever the Faroe Islands are. I've always heard that. They're basically Scotland, aren't they, Graham? Yeah, I think they've got a better climate than us. <laughs> <laughs> saying something. That Aww. is saying something. Uh, Matt, thank you very much for the question. Let's get another one in before we go to a break. This is from Chris Brannigan. Is there a strategy for where to play the ball at kickoff? It seems like more often than not, the ball is passed backwards and immediately booted downfield to a group of opposing defenders in weight. Uh, the kickoff is quite important, gents. It's you know, it's a very important set piece. It's the one set piece you're guaranteed to have at least one shot at as a team. Uh, I think Chris might have been watching 90s Wimbledon because that was the sort of what Wimbledon used to do. Hoof it down to a wide player and lose the ball 60 to 70% of the time. But in that strategy, and that's something that's kind of done these days as well, the idea of hoofing it downfield, it seems dumb, but, but you bringing the ball to the attacking third. And there is a school of thought that, say, if the ball, if you boot it out, to the to the, near the corner flag, the opponents have a disadvantage from a throw on because they've got one player off the field. So there is some logic to that. Um, I, I, I'm rambling though, Taylor. I'll come to you on this question. Yeah, I think you've already hit upon the way it can be utilized pretty effectively. I would say uh, you don't have to go backwards anymore, right? Or no, the ball doesn't have to go forwards anymore. You can play it straight right. backwards. Uh, and But it is like a restart, so you can't just kind of dribble away. So what I think I tend to see is the ball pass back to like a central midfielder who takes a touch, everybody runs forward, and that ball gets hoofed long. And yeah, Ryan, I think part of that is either you're putting the defense under immediate pressure in their own at a third out wide, or you're putting it out of bounds and they're taking a throw, but then you can step everybody high, defend that throw in, and it can be difficult to find somebody open if you're that defensive team. I think there's also an element of if they're slow starters or if they're not sort of ready for you to launch the ball at them, you can catch them out, you can make them uncomfortable, and you can sort of dictate control of the game for at least those opening few minutes as the other team is sort of defensively reeling and scrambling and trying to get back into their style of play. If you continue to be proactive and press them, I think you can cause big problems. Yeah, uh, Joe, seems like a bit of a numbers game, doesn't it? Either hoof it down the field and try and get the numerical advantage and try and get into the attacking third, or your Man City and you pass it backwards to a defensive midfielder and you start the build. Right. Yeah, I see those as the two primary approaches. You play backwards, get into your possession setup and attack from near midfield or probably a little deeper in your own half. Or you do look for a second ball or or maybe it's not even a second ball. I guess there's there's two different paths you could take from the second hoofing it approach that Chris is talking about. You either look for that second ball and you send a couple big forwards over there and try to try to win the ball and then play an attack from there. Or you just immediately start to press. And I think that that second one there is maybe what more teams do. Because there's a lot to be said about field position in soccer. We don't talk about it so much in, in that kind of American football language. But if you can, and Ryan, you already explained this, if you can win the ball way upfield after a throw-in, or, or even if the ball never goes out of play and you just immediately go and counter-press in that area or high-press, you can win the ball and the opposing defense at that point might be a little bit scrambled. And so you have a chance to advance the ball without having to go through all of the hoops of detailed possession play, without having to pass the ball 24 times to move it into the attacking third. You can do it in two actions or three actions instead of 20. So that's that's kind of the thinking. And a lot of teams don't do it very well, but there are teams out there who can use the kickoff to their advantage. And I think teams continuing to get smarter about how they do that will be a development over the next five or 10 years. 
Graham, is there anything more fun in soccer than a kickoff with all 10 outfield players lined up on the halfway line, ready to rush into the <laughs> opponent's half for a, for, a, for a kickoff? Well, the thing is, I'm surprised we don't see that a little bit more. I, I, I think we saw it, I can't remember who it was, but it, I, I remember talking about it in one of the, the weekend reviews last season. Um, and I think maybe kickoff is still overlooked in terms of the, the value that it can bring to, uh, you know, to a, a strategy. I know you're not kicking off all that often. You're, you know, a minimum of twice. And I suppose if you, if you concede, you'll do it a few more times. But I, I just wonder whether that's a, the, the remnants of the limitations of what you, you used to be the case at kickoff. So obviously, as Taylor referenced, the rules were changed. How long ago was that? Three seasons ago, maybe. Um, you used to have to play the ball forward, and so what that meant was you had you had to have two players at the center circle because obviously the one player needed to pass the ball to the other, and that's changed. And now you only really have one player there to pass the ball backwards. That tends to be the case. It tends to keep possession. But I do wonder with teams looking to things like throw-in coaches. You know, famously Liverpool have a, a throw-in coach. I do wonder whether we might see a, a kickoff coach before too long. And, and as I say, I'm just surprised we don't see more teams charge opponents right from the start, particularly when they're looking for a, a late goal in stoppage time. If you, if you concede late on, obviously there is an element of risk in that, you know, you really need your defense to push up quickly to pick off any second or third balls. Otherwise, there's just a complete vacuum in the center of the pitch. But if you're trailing with a, a minute to go or two minutes to go, then, you know, it seems like a risk worth taking. So I wouldn't surprise me if over the next few seasons we see teams focus more on the kickoff as a strategy just because of the way that the, the rule changes have kind of opened things up a little bit. And Graham, uh, one, one thing that you've, you've like reminded me of the person who I can remember doing that is Juan Carlos Osorio. I think it was with Mexico in the Copa America Centenario in 2016, but he sends out his lineup. Everybody knows it's going to be a back three. They know exactly how Mexico are going to set up because the personnel sort of fit into this like three, three, four, three, three, five, two that they were going to roll with. They go, they go with the kickoff. They boot the ball long. And I remember trying to figure out when they changed their formation. And we, st- we realized they changed in like the 15th minute. And we wa- went back and went back and went back. And we realized they hoofed that ball long. And immediately as everybody goes to press, they also changed into a four, three, three shape and stuck that way. And so there was a way that they basically set up so that the opposition could see them really clearly in one shape. And then as soon as they kick the ball, they changed their shape entirely. So I think you're right that there are ways that you can utilize kickoff of the moments before kickoff that teams will probably start to uh, to toy around with a bit more. I think I've missed my calling in life and it is to be a kickoff coach for a very <laughs> top level team where they might only take one kickoff in the game. I think that's uh, what I should <laughs> All I picture, doing. All I picture now is the original Ted Lasso video when he's just screaming, kick it! And that's all I picture with the, uh, the kickoff coach there. <laughs> Excellent stuff. All right, Chris, I hope that answers your question. I think that's a, it's a very interesting part of the game that's not often talked about. So thank you very much for that question, Chris. We'll be back with more after these messages. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, we have returned. We are answering your questions. And here's one from Mr. Drew Strong. If we had a competition that was every four years and featured national teams from North and South America, would people around the world care more like they do with the Euros? Would the increased quality of the competition benefit the United States men's national team? What would be the positives and drawbacks to such a tournament? Joe, I'll come to you first. We're kind of talking about a Copper America Gold Cup hybrid here, I guess. Yeah, and and something similar-ish to that has been done in the past. But if they went all in on this thing and actually made it happen, I think people would absolutely care more, especially if it's a substitute for the Copa America and the Gold Cup, if those tournaments go away and it does become North, Central, and South America's uh, Euros. I think people would absolutely be more invested from all over the world, not just in this region, because of scarcity and that whole idea of there's not as much soccer going on. And so this is the big event, you know, alternating years with the World Cup or however you want to set that up. There would be some smaller Central American and Caribbean nations that probably wouldn't be too happy about this. But for the U.S. and for Mexico and for a handful of other teams in CONCACAF, if you add them into the 10 teams that are usually in the Copa America and you make it a 16-team tournament. So you've got 10 from South America, 6 from North and Central America in CONCACAF. I think that would be a great show. I think it would be uh, be good for the pockets, for the parties involved there, federations and the nations competing. But I also think it would be good for not just the United States, but the rest of the region, the rest of the countries in CONCACAF that would be competing in this. You get more exposure to higher level competition, which just isn't available right now in CONCACAF, really. Uh, and so that's a huge benefit. It's going to develop talent. Players are going to learn things in those games that you just really can't learn in other games. And if you keep CONCACAF Nations League, which has had a lot of people poke fun at it, but in this in this alternate reality, it would become quite important because then it, it kind of would be a different take on the Gold Cup against the, the regional competition and you have this big tournament as well. I like this idea a lot, Drew. I think this could be a ton of fun. Yeah. Uh, Graham, what do, you, what do you think about it? Um, do, you, do you like the idea of it being every four years rather than biannual like the Gold Cup or every one, two, three, four or whatever years Copa America decides it uh, spaces its tournaments? Yeah, I think, you know, what makes the, the World Cup so special is that it only happens once every four years, although it seems like uh, Arsene Wenger, of all people, wants to uh, wants to change that. I guess in, t- in terms of the question, I am probably the, quote, people around the world in that I... I uh, you know, I, I don't watch much of the Gold Cup. I watch a little bit of the, the Copa America. And from a European perspective, there's just absolutely no doubt that more people would care about a, a North and South America uh, hybrid competition. The Gold Cup, I have to say, just doesn't register at all here, uh, I'm afraid, to the point that even some big football fans might not even know what it is. The Copa America, even with... Argentina and Brazil and lots of players that the European fans know again doesn't really register even though it was it was on British TV here but it wasn't one of the main channels obviously the time zones don't help and things like that but um yeah I, I think a, a hybrid competition would would definitely help in that regard I mean we we're, we're, competitions are kind of going in that way anyway I mean Qatar and the Gold Cup this year the Copa America Centenario I think um you you guys will be able to correct me on this it had invited teams the USA was was in that wasn't wasn't mm-hmm. it, weren't it yeah and um you know Australia and Eurovision and uh, <laughs> Good example. so yeah 
who, who cares who cares about confederations they should just create one big confederation for all of world soccer and they can call it something like I don't know, the Federation Internationale de Football Association. Uh, <laughs> just a name that I've thought of. And they should organise a tournament every four years, Graham, and everyone's invited. What do you think? Yeah, great idea. Nobody's yeah. ever done it before. Good, good. So I think I think I, I disagree with both Joe and Graham a little bit. And Graham, I'd like to ask you, like, if there's no real interest in the Gold Cup at all, and if there's very limited interest in Copa America, why would there be more interest if those two things combined? Because you've got the South American teams, your Argentina and Brazil, yeah. and then you have American branding and uh, spectacle ah. and ticker tape, and boom, you've got you know a massive tournament. No, but it's, it's a fair point. Like I, just, I guess maybe my theory falls down there a little bit. I just think because you're adding two confederations, I guess maybe the what I'm getting at is people would certainly care more about that than the Gold Cup which just, yeah. I'm afraid, oh, just doesn't sure. register at all here. The, the, uh, one thing I was going to ask you guys was, looking at it from the other side, um, by you guys, I mean from the, the people who mm-hmm. have the American perspective on this, obviously the, the theory is competition would be good for the USA in terms of uh, growing players and becoming a better team, going from a big fish in a small pond to a slightly smaller fish in a, in a bigger pond. But how, how much would American fans miss winning as they do in the Gold Cup, because it's a little bit of a cliche. Maybe it's not a cliche. You guys can tell me that one of the biggest factors in the sports that American sports fans are interested in is if they can win it. And obviously, you know, you look at the, the Olympics, it seems like the Olympics is a huge deal in America because you guys do really well in the Olympics. So would going into a hybrid North and South America competition where the USA wouldn't be the giant in that tournament, would that affect, have, would that maybe have a detrimental effect in any way? I think. This is this is just my opinion, and I think I don't think I'm in a mood here. But uh, I, I think if the U.S. were to enter into that competition, I think it only makes people more interested, even if they aren't winning it or even getting out of the group necessarily. Because to some extent, I think the Gold Cup is a poison chalice of a lot of neutrals or sort of casual U.S. fans who will get into the national team way more for the World Cup or for World Cup qualifying. I think also aren't as interested in the Gold Cup, like. It's a, it's maybe a bad example, but like my in-laws and my parents are like, they are always into the U.S. when they're at a World Cup, the men and the women. But a bunch of them have asked me like, what's, is there a tournament happening right? Like, what's going on? Like, I think people don't always know. And then I think the people that do are the very, very dedicated people who then sort of, if not dismiss it, sort of tend to say, ah, it doesn't really matter till the knockout round. And even then, it doesn't really matter unless we're playing Mexico in a final. But if we don't make it to the final, then things have gone horribly wrong, and that matters too. And so I think if you're playing in an enlarged competition against stronger opponents, even if the U.S. isn't winning, I think there's an idea of there'll be more interest here, I think in the U.S. and just basically in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and I think that will get more people interested in watching the U.S. play Brazil and U.S. play Argentina, even if they end up losing those games. I think it also prepares them better for the World Cup and for World Cup qualification and for the, the stronger teams you're going to play. So I think it would be better even if we run the risk of never winning it. That's my thought, at least. Joe, what about you? Yeah, uh, I agree with every single word you just said, Taylor. Right. I think the the amount of people that actively care about the U.S. in the Gold Cup and even more than that care about the U.S. winning the games against smaller teams in the Gold Cup is just so much smaller than the people who would care about the U.S. in a bigger tournament playing the teams that Taylor just talked about. So, yeah, I, I think it would I think it would be a good thing for the U.S. in that way. And I don't I really don't think 
uh, like uh, Graham Ryan, feel free to to correct me of this assumption. I just don't think that prioritizing getting European viewers is the way to go because I don't think no. you're going to get that, especially if it's in competition with the Euros. I think there's always going to be an element of, oh yeah, it's that West like Western Hemisphere thing, like Canada's involved. I don't know the U.S. Whatever. Like we're just going to put pay attention to the Euros. I think there's probably other countries that would care and other areas of the world that would care and maybe if you made it invitational where australia do get an invite instead of being in eurovision maybe they take that one or you can start, sort of <laughs> make, make it, it you are making it like another world cup at that point to graham to graham's point but They're not giving I, I, up eurovision by the way <laughs> okay I, I hope not i hope not but i but i would say like i think a lot of it has to do with the appointment viewing aspect of things and i think mm. brazil is probably appointment television argentina uruguay colombia sometimes mexico sometimes but the united states like can either you graham or you ryan other than like in the last couple of years think of a time that you were like "Ooh, this u.s team i can't wait to see blank like it might have been when there was a player in form but aside from that i don't think the u.s has ever really had the level of talent or the names that may, would make a, an English person or a German person stay up into the wee hours of the night or early morning to watch the U.S. play. You, yeah. you would get you would get some, some Chelsea fans at the moment with Pulisic, <laughs> yeah, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, I think, and so I think those guys becoming those names, the the Pulisic, the the Re- like, I, I don't want to do the the thes list. I will just say Pulisic. I think Reyna does that. McKinney. I think probably if he continues to have success, success with Juve, and I think there's more players that will do that. And once the U.S. becomes a bigger draw, a team that people do want to watch, I think Mexico is probably already in that category. I think Canada is moving towards that as well. And I think once you have more teams that have more players that people want to see, that neutrals want to see, you'll get eyes on you. When Didier Drogba was playing for Ivory Coast, I think there was always. That was an immediate draw. I'll watch the Ivory Coast play because Didier Drogba is so good. I want to see what he's going to do for his country. I don't know if the U.S. has that person that people are sort of that interested in the way other smaller countries tend to have. Once they do, I think maybe there is more interest. And then combining the tournaments creates even more interest. Yeah, I do agree, Taylor, that chasing like European views and European interest, it shouldn't be the barometer for success for something like this as well. And I think um, when it comes to Copa America and when it comes to things like the Gold Cup, Graham's right in, in the limited interest uh, on this continent. I'm in the UK at the moment. But I think it's time difference is a lot of it because prime time in the US, prime time in, in the Americas is middle of the night for Europe. So it's uh, it's tough to get a lot of eyes on that kind of thing. But that's a very good question from Mr. Drew Strong. Thank you very much for that one. Let's uh, get another one. Uh, This is from Dan Martini. This question neither shaking nor stirring me, Dan. When players are checking in for the Euros, he says, uh, the fourth fourth officials check the bottom of their cleats. Uh, From my research, says Dan, metal studs are legal. So what else are they checking for? I've done a little bit of research here, but Joseph, I'll come to you first. Yeah, this is an interesting question. I did not know the answer to this. So I went into the IFAB rule book, baby, into the laws Woo! and uh, found out that place. they're really <laughs> – it is a dark place, Graham. You're absolutely right about that. It's a sad corner of the internet. There's not a lot of information about this. The rule book got a woo. That's shocking. Is that from Ryan? <laughs> yeah, Ryan, I believe it was. Okay, come I'm on. A stickler. <laughs> there aren't a lot of guidelines from IFAB as far as equipment or, or boots. Graham, I know you hate the word cleats. So I'm going to say boots as much as possible. Um, apparently, according to IFAB Law 4, a player must not use equipment or wear anything that is dangerous. And that, gentlemen, is the extent of the uh, laws that I could find that related to this topic. So I did some more reading, some more research, and it seems like from everything I could find, the referee is just looking for 
anything out of the ordinary, yeah. anything super sharp. It could be a metal stud. That's fine. But if part of it is shaved off or into a point somehow, yeah. either maliciously it's, or accidentally, it's they're looking for things that are not normal to be stepped on with. It's basically to catch that one time that Sergio Ramos decides to wear running spikes. Uh, <laughs> no, Sergio. <laughs> <laughs> I... My understanding was, it says um, uh, Dan says that the the metal studs are legal. Maybe it's certain kinds because my understanding, Graham, I don't know if you like rugby studs. They're like Uh metal, but they have like a a flat end on them as well. They've got a sharp edge on them. My understanding is certainly in in, for the English FA, they're not allowed. So they're checking for those, Uh, and it's just as as you say, it's it's a metal screw. It's if someone's I don't know taped a jackknife to the bottom of their boots or anything that could could be dangerous. (laughs) Sorry, I was just going to say, a, a more kind of um, common occurrence would maybe be if a player was missing a stud. I think yep. that would also be something that would be raised. So obviously yeah. metal studs for anyone who knows. I mean, it's a long time since I've had a pair of boots, actually. So maybe they've changed boots. Um, but when I was young and played, you used to be able to screw the studs out of the boots. Yeah. And they would come out occasionally. So I guess that would be raised if you were missing a stud. Does anyone you can break, actually make you can those break kind of cleats ones. anymore? Like. A removable stud's still a thing. I don't even know. I don't, I've never, I haven't seen a pair like that in a long time. I don't know. Silence. I, don't <laughs> I know. genuinely don't know. <laughs> I've, I've always wanted to wear them, uh, but I, I was kind of scared about using metal cleats and what could happen there. Um, and then I, I, but I have broken. Uh, uh, what am I not supposed to say? Cleats. cleats. Yeah, you just, right, cool. the thing you just said. Yeah, uh, soccer cleats. <laughs> there you go, Graham. That's for you. Oh, no. uh, yes, I've broken a stud before and not realized it, and I think that's also what they're checking because they're checking the player subbing on to make sure they're going to be safe and they're going to be in control of their body because that player could get hurt. But then also because if that player maybe is missing a key stud in a key moment, they they lose control, they fly out of control, and they slam into somebody. And now you've got injuries. So I think they're checking both for. Like deliberate actions that could be negative, but then also unintentional situations. They check underwear too, which is a thing that I always forget about. Yeah, and you've got Nicholas Bentner to thank for yeah. that one. Yep. Thanks, Paddy Power. Yeah, that's why we're <laughs> checking that one. Uh, but yeah, you're right; it's not just the studs. That, uh, they're checking. They're checking for things like jewelry as well. Uh, and if you look at Law oh, yeah. Four, a players' equipment from the FA Rulebook, all items of jewelry, necklaces, rings, bracelets, earrings, leather bands, rubber bands, etc., are forbidden and must be removed. Using tape to cover jewelry is not permitted which is odd because I've seen that plenty of times before. Mm -hmm. Uh, The players Mm -hmm. must be inspected before the start of the match and substitutes before they enter the field of play. And I know I've been at several games where um, a necklace has to be taken off or players are asked to remove rings, for example. But I've also seen plenty of times where earrings are taped over. So um, maybe that is in in contrivance with the rules. But what do I know? What do I know? But uh, but it's not just uh, the checking of the studs that, uh, that occurs when a substitute comes on. I think, Taylor, we've pretty much nailed that question, have we not? I believe we have. We have indeed. Let's take a quick break and we'll be back with more shortly. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be Offers coming through willingly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But 
For the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. 
Total Soccer Show, we are back and we have a question from Mr. Drew Jordan. Taylor, I'm going to ask you to prick your ears up here oh for this one because Drew Jordan is a Man United fan. Uh, he says, when I was watching the Euros, it seemed that several United players performed much better for their national teams than for the club, most notably Harry Maguire and Paul Pogba. Is this too small a sample size to judge or does it point to a larger problem with Manchester United, that perhaps the manager isn't able to get the best out of his players or that the team strategy isn't putting the players in their best positions to succeed. On a related note, says Drew, uh, both France and England sometimes played a 3-4-1-2. Is that part of why Pogba and Maguire are doing better? And if United were to play a 3-4-1-2, would uh, Aaron Wan-Bissaka work as the right centre-back? Taylor. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Uh, Which which part should we start with? How about the general concept of uh, players being better for the national team than for Manchester United, which I think is perhaps a, a valid observation? Yeah, I, I think like this answers the question, but maybe I'm, I'm splitting hairs. I think it's sort of a difficult question to ask and answer because players can do different things based on what they're being asked to do. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer might be asking Harry Maguire and Paul Pogba to do a certain thing for the club because that's what they need to do. And then when they play with their national teams, they're being put in an entirely different situation with entirely different players and asked to do something else. Well, hang on. And, Can I stop so, you there? Can I stop you there? Because yeah. it's, it's fair enough to say that of Paul Pogba in a creative position. Mm-hmm. But how different is Harry Maguire's role when he's sure. with United than with England? Yeah, and I was, I was going to say, like, I think I've even sort of just further outlined the question, which is, like, why does that tend to be the case then? And I think with Harry Maguire, I'm stealing Graham's point. I think he's talked about this before, that having maybe better personnel around you in the immediate areas, specifically right ahead of you as you're holding midfielders, I think it gives him more cover. I think England keeping those sort of two defensive midfielders shielding that back line does a better job than I think Fred and Scott McTominay were trying to do. Uh, and I think also with how the how United have the legacy of being this attacking, attack, attack, attack sort of football team, football club, excuse me, uh, that it's harder to sort of strike that balance. Whereas at international level in a major tournament, I think you would be forgiven, even if you're Gareth Southgate, for going a slightly more defensive route and then having kind of flare attackers to make up the difference. So I think that explains a lot of Harry Maguire. I do think Paul Pogba is a very streaky is the wrong word, but emotional player. And I think he's an incredibly good player and does things that a lot of other people cannot do. But I think he needs the proper motivation and the proper sense of involvement and belief. And I do think that's a thing that hasn't always been prioritized at Man United. So that's a that's a um, a nicely put way of saying that Pogba <laughs> isn't given the right materials at United. I mean, I think he also hasn't put himself in the position to take said materials. I think there's a lot going on with Paul Pogba I, at Manchester United. Sorry, right. I was just going to come in. I, I think that both for both Maguire and Pogba, so they're the, they're the two notable examples of players, minor players playing better for national teams. I'm not entirely sure there there are many more who play who who are in that category. I mean, Luke Shaw was very good at the Euros, but he was equally the best left back in the Premier League last season. My my son, Scott McTominay, let me tell you, is a lot better for Manchester United than he is for Scotland. That's a criticism made of him, um, is that he doesn't carry that over into his national team. So uh, Maguire and Pogba are the two examples you would say, and I think they're both linked. I think it's both to do with personnel, and it's actually the same area of the pitch that means they're both 
uh, they both play better, tend to play better for their national team. So Pogba has N'Golo Kante alongside him. And I just think having that, that sort of player alongside him takes a lot of the responsibility that, of the, the kind of defensive dirty work away from him. And equally, I think Maguire is better for England, or he was better during the Euros, you would say, because he had that platform, as Taylor referenced, of Phillips and Rice in front of him which I think we could probably all agree is a better uh, midfield partnership than McFred. Um, and and so, yeah, I think that, I think it's purely down to, to personnel. With Maguire, he has an interesting case, and I think the Varane signing will be a true test of whether or not Solskjaer knows how to use Maguire, because I think a lot of Maguire's problems are down to the players in front of him and also Victor Lindelof, who just seems to... Lindelof's a decent player, but just seems to bring the worst out of Maguire. And so having Varane, who is... For me, a top three centre back in the world alongside him. That, that's going to kind of that's going to be a true test of Maguire and also Solskjaer. But um, yeah, it, the, the one Wan-Bissaka right centre back. If I can address that for a moment, mm. feels like it should work in that he's one of the, one of the best one on one defenders in the Premier League. However, his positional w- awareness is is really quite poor. I mean, how many times do you see him getting caught slightly up the pitch and someone ghosts in at the back post for an opposition team to score? So maybe in practice that one wouldn't actually work. Joe, what are your thoughts on this question and maybe on that on that back three question with Basaka? I don't think the back three makes sense for Man United, not because of Basaka. I think he could do that job fine. And there are issues there that Graham just mentioned. But if you go with a back three, specifically a 3-4-1-2, if, if you change the shape in front of the back three, it's fine. But the 3-4-1-2 doesn't really make sense with the attacking personnel that Manchester United have. You just pay big bucks for Jaden Sancho and you play a shape without wingers. That doesn't, that doesn't add up to me. You have other talented wide players as well in this roster. Anthony Martial, Marcus Rashford. There's, there's others too. I, I think you want to stick with that 4-2-3-1 and hopefully pray that you find a, Conte-esque and Esk is carrying a heavy load there, but a Conte-esque kind of player. And you play Pogba next to that guy in the double pivot and you have Bruno Fernandes in front of them and then you have Cavani up top and Sancho on one side and probably Rashford on the other. That that just seems to make sense to me. I love the points that you guys have made already about why Pogba and Maguire look better for their national teams than they do for Manchester United. It's context, right? It's context around them and it's the context of, of those environments. It's just different than it is for Manchester United. The only thing I wanted to add on Pogba is something we've talked about before. He he has this incredible skill on the ball. He has incredible vision. He has incredible passing. He's great on the ball, driving it forward. He's so good at exploiting little gaps and, and creating problems for opposing defenses. Because international teams don't have, because national teams don't have nearly as much time to train together, their defensive schemes are just weaker. They're easier to exploit. They're easier to break through. And I think that's a big reason why Pogba has, or Pogba looks like he's just flowing so much better for France than he does with Manchester United. It's because Manchester United are going up against, I don't know, whole city in the FA Cup who are packed behind the ball. And in France are playing against Switzerland to have gaps in their back line. So I think that's another important distinction. The yeah. game is just different at international level versus at club that, level. That's interesting. And I think um, it's notable that it's not just Man United in England that this is a, this phenomenon happens no, with. No, yeah. Um, when we did our Euro best 11s a, a few weeks ago, uh, my midfield was Pedri, Hjoiberg and Pogba, uh, who, whom I defined all uh, being better than they were for their domestic teams. And it's because they had slightly different roles. And I think you're right, it's because they were coming up against slightly different defences. And certainly with uh, Pogba and Hoiberg, uh, maybe a bit more uh, pushing forward. Certainly with Hoiberg, um, they're, they're Joe. 
It's different. It's different. I, I just made me smile there thinking about Pedri because he's so good and it made me happy to think back <laughs> to that time. Ryan, when he was all in our team of the Euros, yeah. it just, it's a different environment and I think these two players highlight it well. I hadn't even thought of the Maguire uh, within the England structure and how that helps center backs. Not just him, but helps really the, the rest of England's back line. Different situations, it's hard to compare even though it's the same players that we're talking about. And I think, Go on. and I think going back to like the original question we got to start this show about like national teams tend to struggle or would struggle against club club teams. I think a lot of that has to do with the club team practicing day in and day out and working on things and learning patterns. And you go here and this half yard and this half step, and you can't really do that when it comes to your national team. So I think you're getting automatically players coming in that understand they have to compromise a little bit and they can't do exactly what they want to do always. I think it gives national team managers a little more flexibility to say, in this specific situation, I need you to do this, even if it's not necessarily a thing you do naturally. It allows this person and this person and this person to play better attacking football, and that's what we want, so that's what we're going to do. I think Solskjaer, for the situation he inherited at Manchester United, and then with Paul Pogba, I think he he doesn't have as much freedom to, like, not necessarily cater to what Paul Pogba needs, but if there is a lineup that fits 10 of the 11 players' skill sets, he is going to go with that approach that suits the most players, that gets everybody playing the most cohesive style. And if there are things about that that accentuate strengths of Scott McTominay or Donny van de Beek, it might be the case that they're going to go with that over Paul Pogba because his skill set just doesn't quite fit. But I think it's less accepted at club level because here's this giant marquee player that you spend a ton of money on, and now you're not getting the best out of them. That pressure isn't really there at the international level because there's a ton of players, if you're France, who have cost that much money and are equally important, and you could have that conversation in three or four different positions. And so I think to some extent that pressure subsides a little bit. The expectation subsides a little bit, at least until we get later on to the tournament. But I think that pressure is always there for a manager like Solskjaer. Slight tangent, Tay-Tay. Yesterday morning, I visited a website that Nicholas Bentner likes to advertise on his underwear, and I placed a bet on Manchester United to win the Premier League at 7-1, really? to one, based uh, mainly on the vibes of Raphael Varen signing. Yeah, how do you feel about that? Uh, I would feel better to to the points we've already made if they had a, a better holding midfielder who maybe allowed them to do things that they want to do more readily and more easily. Uh, Solskjaer, I think, has talked about switching to more of a four three three instead of that four two three one. So I don't know who that single pivot would be. Then stands to reason it would be Fred oh, or McTominay. But I don't know if either of them are going to be able to do that job the way it needs to be done. So that would be my lingering area of concern. Maybe I'm just being pessimistic. Taylor, Taylor my prediction is that you're going to get that player in this window. And I Who would it be, though, Graham? I think it's going to be Camavinga. I think they're going to go for Camavinga. <sighs> yeah. all, the, all the reports are now that they're, they need to sell. Sorry, mm-hmm. we've totally gone off a tangent here. But no, that's fine. They need, they, now that they've got Varane and Sancho, which, by the way, what a window that is already. But to get, um, I, I think they need to sell a couple of players. But they've got some sellable assets like Dallo, Lingard, obviously. There's a couple others. And I think that money is going to get put towards Camavinga. And then for the final day of the window, it's going to, they're going to go for Trippier as a kind of more attacking right back. That, I think like that, that has been like the consistent reports all the mm. way through the window has been over those four players. So I, it just feels like that's what I think they'll do. I have slight, I have slight concerns about Camavinga being able to 
to hold a little bit more and to screen and to shift and become more of a, more of a defensive player than a ball progressor because I think that really is what Manchester United need. But I, I want to put a caveat there. I need to go back and watch more film because he would be so much fun to watch. I just am not – all of me is not totally sure that he solves the problem. But who knows? We'll find out. Before you go back and watch more film, Joseph, I'd like you to answer one last hmm. question on this listener question show. It comes from David Hulme, who asks, why was Jaden Sancho brought to the Euros over an actual left back or a known locker room presence such as Lingard? And we had a bit of a discussion about this question before we came on air, and there's, there's, there's some separate elements here going on, Joe. Um, perhaps there's a discussion here about why Jaden Sancho was brought to the Euros, say, over another player, and maybe there's a discussion there about England's use of fullbacks. I'll start with the fullbacks one because I'm still a little bit confused by the whole Jaden Sancho situation mm. at the Euros for England. And I think a lot of folks are still at this point. But as far as the left back situation goes, well, actually, let me back up. All of the conversation about England's roster, much of it was tongue in cheek, was about, oh, they have so many right backs. And they did have a lot of right backs on that roster. But they also had left backs. And so, so maybe David is, is, has his wires slightly crossed here because Man- uh, England, not Manchester United, had Luke Shaw. They had Ben Chilwell. And then Trippier played there as well. And why he played at left back, I don't necessarily know. Maybe he's a little bit more defensive and brought a different look. It worked. But they had, they had, it did work. They had left backs. And so I don't think Sancho, the Sancho conversation really overlaps into the defense roster construction situation. As far as, you know, why you bring Jaden Sancho instead of another winger who you might play more, I don't know. Something happened along the way to have Jaden Sancho be a permanent fixture on the bench. He started one game at the tournament mm. for England against Ukraine, and that's only because Saka had a little injury. So Saka was the starter on that side. Phil Foden was at first, then Saka played a lot more. Why? I I'd be lying to you guys if I said I knew. Jaden Sancho is one of the most talented and best wide attacking players in the world. And he's phenomenal. And I think he would have helped this England team. He has slightly different attributes to Saka. And so maybe that's why Sancho doesn't play. But that even, that wasn't even the question. It's why do you bring Sancho? And why you bring Sancho if you're not going to play him, I guess I'm not as sure about. Yeah, and I think, Graham, if we're going to talk about Sancho over a, a known locker room presence such as Jesse Lingard, it, and, and Lingard was in the uh, the Concacaf style fifty man squad before the uh, yeah. before the tournament, of course, and, and he played he played at least was it two of the friendlies? I think he played and, and did very well yeah. as well. But going forward, when you're building this England team, you're going to back Sancho probably. Oh, I, I mean, absolutely. I think Sancho. I would have played Sancho in more games. Uh, at the, you know, as Joe mentions there, he only he only started one game in the whole tournament. I do think maybe Southgate was mindful of the speculation around his future because it was quite coincidental that as soon as Manchester United announced that they had agreed a deal with Dortmund, and there were a lot of jokes at the time. Oh well, now he's going to start some games for England, and then he did start the next game uh, against Ukraine after that deal. So I think I think maybe that speaks to perhaps he was distracted during the tournament I'm, I'm speculating obviously a little bit here but yeah it's, it's 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 an interesting one that he wasn't used more I think maybe just due to the balance of the team so if you have Sterling on the left and Saka on the right you know Sterling likes to um he's more likely to cut inside than than Saka so maybe he wants someone to cut inside and, and link up play on the left and Saka is more likely to stretch the pitch and maybe burst the byline on, on the right, whereas Sancho, if he'd be on the right, would maybe have congested play in the middle a little bit more. He is more of a, a, a ball carrier than, than than Saka. He is more of an attacking hub than Saka, um, as we've seen from him for Dortmund over the past, what, three seasons. 
Um, so it might just have been down to the, the balance of the team. And I don't necessarily think putting Lingard in for Sancho, I think in the question it's, uh, it's referenced, you know, how much of a, a locker room presence Lingard is. But I didn't, I didn't really get the sense that this England squad was, was lacking really in that regard at, the, at this tournament. It seemed like there was a pretty good, a pretty good spirit, pretty good environment in that dressing room. So I'm not really sure how much they would have needed Lingard. And in terms of having a player who might have offered more as a traditional winger over Sancho, you know, Lingard's not really that player either. He, he, predominantly plays through the middle actually rather than kind of out on out in the wide areas i know he can do that but yeah i i i wouldn't i would still would have picked sancho over lingard i like lingard um but sancho is i, I know a lot of people hate this word this term but if i'm going to use it he is a, a bit of a generational talent for england and i think he's going to be one of their their best players for the next 10 years i agree with that graham i agree with your your sort of everything you said i i would i would be a little bit shorter on saying he's a generational talent just because like again now that he's a man united player i think i'm automatically like "Ah, it's not gonna work everything's gonna be bad (laughs) uh but it it is strange to say about a player of that quality that he is we're basically talking about the 22nd or 21st player on the roster maybe even the 23rd and i think that is something to consider that when you look at the depth of talent england had and has like there is cover in a number of different positions and i think for southgate it probably came down to like there are two positions left and i've got four or five different names that could fit there and so then you look at where do i already have depth where do i already have cover and i think it's worth remembering that england i think luke shaw maybe was carrying an injury or wasn't at full fitness and i think that's part of why trippier starts on the left but also there's Ben Chilwell then as the depth, but he has to be uh, sidelined or quarantining, and so then he's not involved, and I think that's a little bit of an unforeseen circumstance. But you have left-back cover. You certainly have right-back cover. There's a ton of depth in the middle. Lest we forget, Mason Mount is probably going to start somewhere on that pitch, usually as a number 10. And so suddenly the positions fill up really, really quickly because you're always going to start Harry Kane if you're Southgate. You're probably going to start Raheem Sterling if you're Gareth Southgate. And so then... Your team is sort of selected, and then you're looking at alternates and sort of depth. And I think there's probably a thinking of if Harry Kane can't go, if he gets injured, we have Dominic Calvert-Lewin. But if we need a more sort of mobile, fast-paced, attacking, like, triumvirate, I can see a world in which he thought, I'll put Raheem Sterling central, Marcus Rashford, or sorry, Raheem Sterling on the left, Marcus Rashford central, and then Jaden Sancho out wide, and will attack with pace or counterattack with pace or what have you. And I think probably Jaden Sancho just gave him that one different look that made it like even more of a lock for him to be in this squad. I think he would have been anyway, because I do also think optics are part of this. And if he brings Lingard over Sancho, the minute that that becomes a problem the minute Jaden Sancho could have scored a goal against Scotland, but instead Jesse Lingard was there. He knows he's getting hit for that. And I don't think it's a major factor, but I think it is a factor. And so I think all those combine as to why Jaden Sancho was in that squad. Gents, I think we just got through a conversation about England's attacking midfield options without mentioning the words Jack or Grealish. So congratulations uh, to all of us <laughs> in that one. Um, and, I th- and, I believe, and I believe Phil Foden. Did we get Phil Foden in there? We, I don't think we did. I think I said it once. Okay, yeah. thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Wonderful stuff, gentlemen. I think that just about wraps up our listener questions for this moment. Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much for your contribs. Contribs instead of contributions today. I haven't got time for a whole word there, clearly. Well, t- <laughs> <laughs> Joe, you too. Oh, you got it, Ryan. Thank you. G. <laughs> I'm off back to my uh, Olympics dungeon. 
along with the US <laughs> men's basketball team. Oh, I'm picturing something very sinister now. Okay, bye! Bye!